0: Hello there, my name's Peter. I'm one of the leaders at Urban Vineyard. This is a re-recording of the message from Sunday the 26th of November. We had a bit of a glitchy sound on the day. We were talking about living out of our identity as God's image in a changing culture. Now to recap, we're on part six of our series being God's image, flourishing as God's creation. We began that series with a creation story God hanging out in his garden temple with the pinnacle of his creation, us, his image bearers, or literally idols. His physical representation in the physical place that is the earth, his sacred space. We then looked at vocation, that God-given partnering adventure to represent him, to rule and fill and cultivate over the three domains of sea and land and air, and those creatures that inhabit them, as well as all the culture that follows that. And Ali's story of going to Papua New Guinea is a great example of that. We looked at the Ark of the fall and the redemptive work of Jesus, which means a journey towards restoration of what was lost. Now, we never lost our image bearer status because of sin, but we carry his image through suffering and frustration of things that are not yet what they will be. As well as the joy of the future breaking in. Sarah taught us about God's image being our physical bodies, not particular capabilities like reason or conscience that we might gain or lose. There is no deficiency that would mean we are not his image. We are precious, sacred and of the highest worth. Jesus explained that the man born blind was not that way because he'd done anything wrong or his parents had done anything wrong. His disability had a purpose to display the work of God in his life. We see that as Seth bore Adam's family likeness, so we bear the family likeness of God. We carry his image, just like we carry our earthly parents' genetic material. As an aside, I was thinking about what Sarah said, that Jesus is God and he's in the image of God. The analogy I thought of was this. Imagine if Harrison Ford went to a sci-fi convention, And there was a Han Solo lookalike contest, right? Now, they're all there and they all look just like him. And, you know, I don't know, maybe he comes second in the contest. And somebody says to him, you know, you look like the spitting image of Han Solo. It's like, yeah, well, he's him. And he's him. That's like Jesus. He's in God's image and he is God. We are in God's image, but we're not God. We're like the other people who are cosplaying Han Solo. Jesus, like Harrison Ford, looks like him and he is him. The key point about being physically his image bearers is this. We are sacred sites of God's presence in every place we go. Image bearing is not conditional. It's like a photograph of the person you love the most. You keep it in your jacket pocket close to your heart. And that's how we're to see every human being on this planet. All 7.8 billion of us one at a time, individually known. We didn't earn it and we can't lose it. So we treat every person as a priceless work of art, like a treasured photograph of our true love. Johnny set out that God created us as male and female image bearers, biologically dimorphic differences in size, weight, color, behavioral traits, anatomy, chromosomes between male and female. That's something unavoidable, intentional and equally significant about God's image being in male and female. Eve is able to take on the title that God uses of himself as a helper because she is suitable. And that word suitable means both the same as and different from Adam. She's bone of bone, flesh of flesh rather than made from dust. All the other creatures were different but they weren't the same so they weren't suitable to be alongside Adam and equally a second man would have been the same but not different God's intention for womanhood was a unique fusion of sameness and difference and an interdependence and variety that comes with that tells us something about who God is and in relationship and sexual union, the one flesh of same but different humans points back to the relational nature of the eternal father, son and spirit who said, let us make humans in our image. And it also points forward to Jesus and his bride, the church. Johnny also showed us that the maleness of femaleness of created physical bodies are an essential part of our embodiment. So some gender differences are good and normal and natural. But we saw Jesus and Paul messing with rigid cultural gender roles where they're dehumanising. Because they can trap us. They can trap men and women in stereotypes that don't show equal dignity and worth. Tenderness in men and the elevated manner of women were set against the rigid hierarchy of Roman culture. And they weren't having that. God wanted to break a few boxes. Scripture gives us license to challenge gender norms, but not to challenge our biological sex. Our sex is fundamental to who we are. We're called to love and care for everybody, with particular care for those who experience dissonance and dysphoria about gender. We want to be a place that offers a liberating path out of dehumanizing gender roles. Not a rigid, narrow life, but a spacious life of responsible dependence, living faithful to our creator. And that's where we got up to. What a privilege it's been to see how God unfolds more about who he is and what that means for who we are. Today is going to be a little bit different. I want to start with a story from my childhood as a little boy. So I remember we were carrying out a blue and white gingham check table, shuffling it out to our little front lawn. I remember it, but I had no idea what was going on. Years and years later, I was talking to my mum and it just sort of came up. What was going on was this. Our neighbour, Mr Langford and his wife, well, they were holding a garden party for everyone in the street and everyone in the street was invited. Everyone that is, except for one family. Because you see, my mum was divorced. And back then, that was what was seen as, well, it's a broken home, isn't it? So, pointedly, we were not invited. So there was my mum, trying to do her best, and all of a sudden feeling othered by somebody. What was her response? Well, it was defiance. It was her refusal, defiantly refusing the shame that came from our culture at that time. So we went out and had our own lunch next to the big garden party. And all that is just to say, you know, it's a painful thing being on the wrong side of what society approves of. And for many years being outside the sexuality norm carried a huge stigma and cost. You could be imprisoned, you could be blackmailed, and still today you might suffer violence and abuse by some people. Many people have experienced stigma and rejection over their sexuality. So the thing is, what can seem like just biblical reasoning can actually feel to some people much more like punching at a bruise. So that's one reason I'm treading very carefully this morning. We begin by remembering that a pregnant, unmarried teenager faced a huge stigma. And yet the father was pleased for his only begotten son to be born into that pain and rejection. Jesus dwells among us with matching bruises from the stigma that we cause one another in our fallenness, the way that we other one another for being different. But the challenge we've got is this, talking and thinking about sexuality in Western cultures these last few years has got caught up in culture wars. Now this climate leads to polarized positions toxic and hardened attitudes, and a code of unquestionable core beliefs that determine allegiance to one faction or other. There's an emotional intensity which leads to arguing to defend positions, talking past one another, and often more heat than light, rather than respectful dialogue. But how has it got so charged? Well, I think there's two things. One is there have been some real changes in sexual ethics and norms, but the other is that the fundamental narrative about connection and relationships itself has changed. Let me talk about the sexual ethics and norms bit. This will probably make you feel old. It does me. The TV series friends was actually launched 29 years ago. Can you believe that now we love the characters, right? We really identify with them, but friends epitomized an attitude to sex that's been called serial monogamy. In that frame, what that means is, not having sex is seen as ridiculous and pitiful, but also sexual intimacy is not reserved for a lifelong exclusive commitment to one person. Instead, sleeping together is at a relatively early stage in establishing a relationship, ranging from dating for a few days, weeks or months until something causes a relationship to give up, through to maybe setting up home together. And people have multiple sexual partners, which is seen as fine as long as it's in sequence. In other words, not cheating at the same time with two people on the go. Now that became not only the norm, but aspirational for our society. And we're now 29 years on, almost a generation on from that, it's become an accepted norm. More recently, that same norm of sex in serial monogamy, In our culture now applies for those who are opposite-sex attracted, same-sex attracted or both-sex attracted. You know, it's love is love and that's what our culture says normal is. So that's the world we're in. That's the culture. What about the second thing? How our culture sees connections and relationships? In their book, Being Human, Joe Frost and Peter Linus track the course of this change through three stories that we tell ourselves. The first is the romantics story, not romance but romantics. Now this was a school of thought that was reacting to the emphasis on science and reason that took place during the age of the Enlightenment. Poets like Shelley and Blake tapped into the mysterious and intangibles of life, arguing, and I think rightly, that our lives are more than what is seen or known. But they went on from that to say the internal, the emotional and the individual give us meaning. Feelings, emotions, intuition and experience were a primary authority of truth and justice. Under this, you can still see it today in just about every film you can think of. Romantic love, for example, is based on passion and intensity. And when the feelings fade, love itself has faded. The truth of a situation in this worldview can be understood and affirmed based on how we feel about it. So that was the romantic story. The second story is the story of authenticity. That's the importance of living authentic lives that are true to ourselves. In order to live a full and flourishing life, we should be free to express ourselves without any pressure to conform to society, previous generations, or to any creed. In fact, any outside authority, and this story is seen as oppressive and restrictive, even harmful to your unique identity. So if it feels good, do it. And to impose restrictions on someone's expression of love is to deny their authentic self because love is love. Now preferences should be affirmed as whatever feels right to the individual. No one has the right to stop you from loving whoever you choose and expressing that love, however you choose. If a desire is repressed or you are prevented from pursuing your own pleasure, this will lead to harm because you're denying your own truth and your own self-expression. So we say, You do you. The third story is the therapeutic story. That actually what we need to do is help a person to find their best self. Therapeutic culture resists authority and is non-directive. We're just going to help you in your self-expression. You look inside yourself, grow and develop, and we will provide safe spaces to affirm and encourage you wherever that goes. Now, it's not that those things don't, those stories don't contain nuggets of positivity. And that therapeutic story, for example, has value for trauma-informed care. But putting all of that together, we get expressive individualism. That means I is central. Express yourself, live your truth, act on your wants and your desires, pursue your inner peace. Do not repress yourself and do not let anyone else make you feel bad about it. It's your moral duty to live out your truth and that's what it is to be fully human. But when your expression, your self-expression limits or imposes on my self-expression, what happens then? Well, in our culture, we now seem to have little tolerance or resilience to engagement if that engagement is challenging. It very quickly descends into self-preservation. The major threat to my existence, my authenticity, my truth is another preventing me from living how I want. If I feel threatened, I must resist anybody who threatens me or my humanity. So our connections with others can become conditional. It says, ah, you don't need that kind of negativity in your life. And all of a sudden the connection is severed. Relationships become about how others make us feel about ourselves. And we become afraid of the harm others can do to us but and this is why it's probably got tetchy when we're hurt in pain or in a panic we often lash out we can go into protection overdrive and the rational bit of our brain the part that contains the cerebral cortex and our frontal lobe that's really good at problem solving well that gets overwhelmed and instead the amygdala the part of our brain that controls our emotions takes over and we fight and we flee from pain. In moments of crisis, we'll do almost anything to stop the pain of wounds. Scared people do stupid things and hurting people hurt people. So our culture's got us into a place where fear separates us from people, even the ones trying to help us. And we don't respond well to perceived threats when we're scared. Fear has become a dominant force in so many of our interactions and relationships, from political events to Twitter spats. And all of this leads to breakdowns in our humanity as connections unravel. So, what are we to do? How do we navigate a culture that hears in binary? Well, when in doubt, look to the perfect human, look to Jesus. We see in him two things as the perfect image bearer of God. Firstly, we see this, the scandalously radical welcome. What was the context of those well-known parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son? Well, let's read it. Luke 15 says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Now you know the rest of the passage. So the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. Tax collectors and quote sinners. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Hmm. Interesting. What kind of sinners? Well Jesus does not use a euphemism. In Matthew 21 verse 31, he says to the religious leaders, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Again, in Luke 7, 38, Jesus is at Simon, the Pharisee's house and a woman who had led a sinful life comes in. She was notorious. She comes and she weeps at his feet and anoints him with pure nard. What do they say? Surely if he was a prophet, He'd know the kind of woman this is. The amazing thing about Jesus is he hung out with people who would make many respectable people feel very uncomfortable because they lived very different lives. And yet despite Jesus' holiness, they were drawn to him like a magnet. People of all lifestyles who were stigmatised wanted to hang out with Jesus. That tells us a lot about him and about who we are as well. He wasn't frightened by mixing now remember when we looked at the Nehemiah series people were separating from spouses and we said actually back then the polarity was that the sinful could go into the holy and there was a sense of preserving and separation but the polarity of Jesus is different he infects people with God's goodness and grace we see that in Zacchaeus the despised tax collector how he changes and wants to pay back those he cheated fourfold and give away half of his possessions to the poor as well. But along with the scandalously radical welcome of Jesus is a scandalously radical holiness. So let's look at that now. We'll start in Matthew 19, which says this, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given for there are eunuchs who were born that way and there are eunuchs who are made that eunuchs by others and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God the one who can accept this should accept it now this was a passage Johnny looked at before where the Pharisees are asking Jesus is a no-fault quickie divorce okay for anything and Jesus goes back to say let's go back to the beginning that image of male and female what did it mean But I want to draw your attention to the end of the passage. So Jesus had said Moses permitted you to divorce because your hearts were hard. It wasn't this way from the beginning. But he then goes on to say marriage is one flesh and it's so unbreakable apart from sexual immorality. And now that leads them to say with hyperbole, well, well, maybe it's better not to marry. Now, that was probably laughable at the time. It was quite a statement in the world where children were your social security. There were no super there were no pensions they were probably expecting him to say of course no 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 i didn't mean that marriage is great or maybe perhaps tone down the conditions they can't conceive of something different to their no fault divorce being workable because for them being in a marriage relationship is the pinnacle even in their culture instead what did jesus do he talks about eunuchs Some born without sexual organs, some made so by others, or some choose to live like units for the sake of the kingdom of God. Craig Keener in the Bible background commentary notes, There is nothing so offensive to Jewish sensitivities as damaging a person's reproductive organs, a practice which would exclude them from the assembly of God's people. It says so in Deuteronomy. And also, In their culture, being single was totally outside the mainstream of Jewish social life. It was a temporary aberration that needed to be fixed. That being single was being associated with eunuch was a bit like an insult. And yet Jesus turns it around and says, well, marriage can be received as a gift and singleness equally is a noble calling. In a culture that saw not being in a relationship as abnormal and socially disapproved of, Jesus uses that derogatory term unit for single people like himself. Why use a term that would be really, really difficult for people to identify with? Now let's look at another scandalously radical holiness thing. John 6, 51 to 69. Jesus says this. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, "Verily, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before? The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they're full of spirit and life. Yet there are some among you who do not believe. For Jesus known from the beginning, which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to the father unless me, unless the father has enabled them from this time. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe you and know that you are the Holy One of God. Now Jesus has been talking about being the bread of life and he says... This bread is my flesh. We took it for the life of the world. And then and that starts. Whoa, whoa, hang on, said the Jews. What does he mean? Give us his flesh to eat. So he goes on. Surely unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And he says it three times. And by verse 66, many of his disciples have turned back and chose not to follow him. So he's doing it again. He's pushing all their cultural buttons with his claims. There'd been a strict prohibition on blood since the Mosaic law. Why use that language? Why not use a different image? Why use something that would be really, really challenging? Yet sometimes what God asks of us is really, really challenging in our culture. Yet Jesus does that. Jesus is the one who says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. He tells the rich young ruler, sell all you have. Why the provocative language, the completely unreasonable hurdles in their culture? Well, like the disciples, we say, it's a hard saying. But like Peter, we say, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. What we've been seeing in scripture in recent weeks about male and female and about Christian marriage and Christian singleness, in our culture especially, can feel like a hard saying. But actually we see in Jesus both the radical holiness to live a different way a particular way and it has boundaries and we see the radical welcome the scandalously radical welcome that means people do not feel othered they feel they want to be around the presence of God even as he demands these things of us so here's how we see fidelity to scripture in its vision of Christian marriage and Christian singleness together along with respect and dignity of image bearers. Well, someone I admire very greatly puts it this way. Number one, we believe everybody is precious and worthy of dignity and respect as made in the image of God. Number two, we believe sexuality and marriage is ultimately a signpost to the love story at the heart of the universe. And that's why we believe it is to be male and female. And three, if that's painful and confusing to you, we'd love to talk. And we're not trying to score points. That's someone who put it that way is a guy called Andy Robinson, who's a same sex attracted Christian leader in Oxford. Now he's living out a Christian single life, trying to be faithful to the word of God. And he's quite open about that. And he helps other people with that. I'd also like to recommend an excellent book if you want to look further into this tradition. It's The Plausibility Problem by Ed Shaw. So what does faithful discipleship mean given the radical welcome and the radical holiness of Jesus in a society where the cultural norm is that people may be in and out of sexual relationships, whether that's same sex or opposite sex? Well, there are some things it doesn't mean. Firstly, it doesn't mean the unbiblical moral panic of yesteryear that overlooks infidelity and sexual active singleness provided it's straight. That was pure hypocrisy. It was what society saw as respectability. It also doesn't mean the heresy of expecting people who've not had a life in changing encounter with Jesus to live according to scripture. That's pure heresy. Remember, Paul said, what business is it as mine to judge those outside the church? We gladly spend time with people who think differently, who see things differently and live differently to what God calls us to do. That is the radical welcome. And finally, it doesn't mean getting drawn into the false binary of culture wars where either I'm affirming you and everything about you or I'm othering you. Is there a third way? Well, here's what I think it might be. God spelled out as creation, his design for that one flesh union, which is the same yet different of male and female. Now, Living outside of God's intention in any aspect of life is falling short. And we all fall short in many ways. It's unbiblical to pick out one sin and stigmatise above others. Relationship sin, or neglecting the poor, or greed, or fraud, or fiddling your taxes. These are all equally serious. All sin is equally deadly, according to scripture. Nor do we make a distinction between who someone is attracted to. Either same sex, or opposite sex, or both. Does that challenge you? Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. He was probably tempted sexually. He didn't sin. But he was tempted. Was he tempted by attraction to people of the same sex or the opposite sex? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But he was a perfect role model in the single life he lived. So, What's the issue with sexually intimate relationships outside Christian marriage then? Why is it a big deal? Is it a big deal? Well, Psalm 19.3 says this, Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Willful sins are an example of a snare, or as Hebrews 1 says, sin that so easily entangles that we cannot run the race unless we throw it off. The sin can ensnare us so we can't run the race. The key point about getting into a wrong relationship of any kind is that they typically lock in our will to actively and continuously choose on an ongoing basis to live that way. Thus they short circuit our repentance. See with willful sins, we do not regret what we've done like a lapse, but we actively choose and prefer the alternative and we're not willing to give it up. And in this respect, They resemble the pull of idols, and just like idols in any other area of life, for sexual relationship sins, either we throw them off or we cannot run the race. Our willful sins, or idols, anything we put above knowing God and walking in his ways and are unwilling to give up, will they become an ongoing barrier between us and the Lord? And as we see in the Old Testament, God at times graciously continues to interact with those given to idols temporarily for a season, for a limited time. But eventually he brings things to a head and we have to face a choice. Right relationship with God is only restored when we choose him and rid ourselves of the willful sin or the idol. So that's why relationship sins are a big deal and that's why they're different. But we won't be drawn into culture wars or false binary choices. Our understanding of scripture is not affirming or othering, but addressing, addressing the things that we all struggle with, consistent with radical welcome and radical holiness. So wherever any of us get stuck in willful sin or idolatry of any kind, we make no distinction and there's no stigma for any particular type. Where any of us get stuck, pastoral help is there for us to help get us unstuck and to find again God's amazing calling to discipleship whether that's Christian singleness or Christian marriage. We do all this in the context of being the Farno, the extended family of God, the church community of God's image bearers who find deep friendship and purpose living together as disciples of Jesus. Can the Christian single life be hard and costly in a society that sees romantic sexual relationships as the pinnacle of human flourishing? Absolutely. Whoever we're attracted to our life and redeemed relationships are a sacred space where we catch a glimpse of the family likeness of father, son, and Holy spirit. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for farm pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. For the treasure, the pearl of great price, we give up everything. Like Peter said, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we do that not reluctantly but in our joy at what we've found. Being fully human. We find our significance. You matter. We find connection. We matter to each other. We find our presence and place in the world. Your life matters. And we find participation in God's purpose to reconcile all things. The difference we make matters. I'm gonna finish with another quote from Being Human. Our stories are all stories of searching. We search for a good self to be and for good work to do. We search to become human in a world that tempts us always to be less than human or looks to us to be more. We search to love and to be loved. And in a world where it's often hard to believe in much of anything, we search to believe in something holy and beautiful and life transcending that will give meaning and purpose to the lives we live. Humans can be self-oriented and conflicted, searching for significance, connection, a space to call home and a reason for being in all the wrong places. And yet, since the beginning, God has been calling us back to himself and his amazing kingdom. Let's pray together to finish. Lord, we recognise you made us in your image. And yet so much of living in our culture can be challenging and confusing. And even with some of the things we've talked about today can be triggering to us where we've been hurt by fallen people. We recognize this day that othering is treason against your sacred image and we don't want to do it. We want to joyfully embrace your kingdom and your future. We are not defined by our sin or our sexuality. We're defined by the fact that you call us to be children of God, that you give us that right. We're adopted. You give us a new name. And we want to live our lives to please you. Thank you that we don't have to search and find our own identity. You call us by name. And as you do your work in us, draw us to you and guide us. We want to walk in your ways, to walk in love. We want to be full like Jesus of grace and truth. We want to be a people of scandalous welcome and scandalous holiness, Lord. Help us to be both, we pray. Fill us now with your spirit. Fill us with your joy and renew afresh our sense of that amazing image that's in us and that amazing future that you're calling us to. In Jesus' name, amen.